Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. Zach Reimer was a college buddy of mine. Oh my goodness, over a quarter of a century ago. <laughs> That's coming up. But first, I need to tell you about American Pride Roasters Coffee and this month's featured blend, the George Washington Carver. This is easily one of my top three favorites from APR Coffee. I love the Carver blend. George Washington Carver literally came from nothing. Born into slavery in southern Missouri, Carver created his own success through education. As a youth, he walked 10 miles to a different town just to go to school. He eventually ended up at Iowa State University earning a master's degree and becoming the first black faculty member at that school. Such a unique American deserves a unique coffee named after him, which you can try right now at aprcoffee.com. Please try this awesome blend. It's subtle, yet obvious with its hint of peanut butter included. It is so good. Oh, I love smelling it brew. I love the way it tastes. And order at least two pounds of any coffee this month from aprcoffee.com. Enter in the code ATM in the special instructions section, and you're going to get yourself a free bag of the Reagan blend added to your order. No extra cost. Don't forget to use offer code ATM and start your coffee experience today at aprcoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Zach Reimer is a college buddy of mine from back in the 1990s at the University of Nebraska. Oh my goodness. In some ways it seems so long ago and some days it seems like only yesterday. But uh, he and I recently sat down. We talked about those early days of the internet, him being a computer guru, and uh, we relived some epic college pranks, some of which... I forgot, really. Uh, let's get this week's conversation started on At The Mic. Zach, you and I met at the University of Nebraska long about fall of 94. So my goodness, if I say it like this, you and I have known each other for over a quarter of a century. Wow. And I'm old. Join the club, man. Uh, so what did you go to the University of Nebraska to study? Let's start there because... Before you tell your story, you were known on our dorm floor as the go-to computer guy. You knew how to do everything, legal or illegal. But it was an exciting time of the internet really taking root in the country. And you were the expert at Shram Hall, floor number 10. Zach Reimer was your go-to for anything computer. Were you there at the university to learn computers, or you just knew them, or both? Uh, that would be some of both. I got into working on computers when I was in middle school, which is before most people had one in the home. Uh, my dad was right. a high school teacher and had bought an Apple IIe. What year are we talking This here? would be mid-80s, roughly 84, 85, somewhere in there. Um, Got it. And, you know, I worked on that. I started writing programs, subscribed to a magazine to learn how to write programs on it. 
you know, those paper things that people used to mail you if you paid them to. Now, did you, did like a, an uncle or, or a grandparent or did somebody order that subscription for you? Or is this something you sought out? Like, I'm interested in coding and programming computers and, and, and you sought this out. I did. Okay. Um, my, you know, my parents encouraged it, but I had a paper route and so I could do <laughs> such things. Um, so, you know, I would put in the programs that were printed out in these magazines, and then I would figure out how to mess with them to prank my older brother <laughs> or things like that. Um, so I'd been doing this oh, for quite cool. a while. I figured out pretty early on, um, certainly by the time I was in high school, that this was a likely career path for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I started at UNL, they had just formalized an actual computer engineering program. And that's kind of what oh. I wanted to get into. And so I joined that program and then realized fairly quickly after about a year or two, figured out that designing circuits all day really wasn't my cup of tea. And so I switched back into a traditional computer science program. What year has this put you at uh, University of Nebraska? I started there in the fall of 1991. Okay. You knew, obviously, right when you were getting there, years before, this was the career path you wanted. Mm -hmm. What did this lead to for you? Well, a relatively long undergrad career. For a couple of reasons. You were known as the guy who was on like the, I don't know, 10-year plan or something. When did you get out of Lincoln? Well, I didn't fully escape Lincoln until like 2011. Okay, but... okay. Let me, let me back up. Let me reword that. When did you get away from the University of Nebraska? Same time. Um, you know, so, <laughs> oh, no. at least that time was finishing up a master's degree. Um, no, so that that's a okay, story we we'll can see. get into yeah. after this. But I I graduated yeah. undergrad in 1998. That included taking a year okay. off where I was working on what would eventually become a dot com startup company. So there were a few breaks in there and the switch over from the engineering college to arts and sciences, where I had to go back and start over on foreign languages pick up a minor, all those kind of things that aren't part of the engineering college world. And and let me take the opportunity to publicly apologize to you for, um, you, you were a part of our intramural sports teams. And I was kind of the, uh, the guy who, you know, went down to the rec center and uh, I don't want to say commissioner, I can't think of what, what it was called, but basically the guy in charge of organizing uh, all of the uh, sports teams when I was there. Now, you had done this before I got there. Mm -hmm. And then when I came along, I eventually became like the representative for SRAM 10, blah, blah, blah. The point I'm trying to make is that we would play sports together. And I am notorious for being terrible at basketball. And there was an occasion where we were playing a game and you were guarding me. And I guess I did like a head fake on somebody. I don't know what I was doing. Who knows, man? I'm terrible at basketball. You know this. And anyway, I ended up flinging my head back uh, so far that I ended up busting your lip. And, and I still feel bad about that to this day because I don't even think the head fake worked on whoever I was trying to fake out there. So, so please accept my apologies here in front of God and everyone. Uh, I, I still feel badly for, for busting your lip with a stupid head fake. Um, so my apologies. Zach. Probably shouldn't uh, feel too badly about that one. Um, I don't even remember it, to be honest. I do remember experiencing your elbows. Um, oh, no, really? Now, see, I don't even know about that. Oh, no. You're, you had some notorious elbows. Not intentional. 
Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm just that bad. I flail around when I play basketball. You're talking about basketball. Well, they're, they're right? kind of sharp, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but no, that that's nothing. Um, I grew up with older brothers, and we'd play basketball on concrete and end up getting tackled and that kind of oh, stuff. So, God. playing a little rough is nothing new to me. Uh, let me just say, I was so bad at basketball that I actually, I think my senior year, maybe before that. I just organized the team. I didn't play. I didn't even go to the games, man. I was horrible because in like three seasons of playing, I scored four points. It was uh, one of two free throws, and I made a midcourt three-pointer at the buzzer at the end of a first half. Of course, we were getting destroyed, so it really didn't matter. But uh, I, I do not have talent in basketball. So anyhow... I just wanted to throw that out there while I was thinking about it, while we were going through your college life. But we'll get back to college, and we'll get back to what it is you do now. Because you grew up in Plattsmouth, yep. Nebraska, a small town just outside Omaha. What was it like growing up in Nebraska back in the 80s, early 90s? So the kind of the stereotype is, you know, 50% of the conversation is all about Nebraska football. <laughs> I knew you were um, going to say that. So it's, it's so true. Yeah, no different here. <laughs> and the conversations... Have gotten a lot darker in the last twenty years than they used Probably to be. Probably true. <laughs> um, you know, that's there's some truth to that. Uh, I actually really like kind of that small town life. We were close enough to Omaha. My mom actually worked in Omaha as a church musician, mm-hmm. so we were in Omaha regularly. But you know, growing up in a town of six thousand people, I could ride anywhere in town that I wanted to on my bike. You at least knew of just about everybody. Sometimes exception, there was some turnover because we were close to an Air Force base, and so people would kind of come and go from that end of things. But Mm -hmm. it was a good place to grow up. I enjoyed it. Two older brothers and a younger sister, correct? Yep. But we all pretty much left Plattsmouth as soon as we graduated high school, and other than some (laughs) visits here and there, we had other directions we were going. So You ended up in Portland, Oregon, where you are today. Yep. Um, How serious, by the way, were you as a kid and wanting to own a toy store? Or was it more like me, I wanted to be a garbage man to go and rescue all of my toys and all of my stuff that my mom had thrown away without my permission? As serious as a eight-year-old or something like that can be, <laughs> um, if I have a toy store, I'm gonna get a chance to test out everything, you know, see how good it is. Oh, that's a good point. Get to play with yeah. it, and if I don't like it, I don't have to worry about it, but. Okay, but today you're in computer security. Yep. How vulnerable is the average person's smartphone and laptop and home from your perspective? Oh, let's see. Uh, If you have... Scare us, Zach. Actually, if you're using relatively current equipment, not as bad Uh as it used to be. Okay. It's improved quite a lot. There's been a lot of work that's gone into pressuring the vendors for the equipment and service providers Mm -hmm. to provide things that are reasonably secure by default. Routers now actually have decent passwords on them when you get yeah. them from your provider. <laughs> you know, things like that help uh, an enormous amount. And so- I do recall living in an apartment complex and seeing about two dozen routers with no password protection whenever you would sit down at the computer and they were available to you. I'll say that. Yep. To use. Yeah, so fixing some of those kind of things, the administrative passwords aren't all the same for every router of a particular, (laughs) uh, 
you know, model. So you aren't depending on the individual doing a taking a bunch of manual steps to secure their own environment, which that's a, a huge, huge improvement. And in security, it's always a game of securing things relative to the threat that you expect for them. So mm-hmm. we're not expecting, you know, Russian agents to be going after the average person's home network. Yeah. What about Chinese agents, though? No. Are they going after? No? No, home networks, unless you are a particularly high-profile person, you know, where you would be a specific target, you're an uh-huh. attack of opportunity. You know, somebody might gotcha. attack your in your computer or something like that so that they can make use of it, you know, either to attack somebody else or just to kind of expand a network that they can use to do something that they want to okay. do. But that's about it. So if you're not an easy target, they move mm-hmm. on. So how did you end up in Portland from Nebraska? And before you answer that, I do recall in college, you used to wear a Portland Trailblazer shirt. And I'm wondering... Did your love for the basketball team get you to move out west? What happened there? So my dad's family moved around a number of times. And so his younger siblings, my grandparents, had all kind of settled in Oregon. And so we would come out to visit, which is how I ended up with the blazer shirts. Um, (laughs) And being a basketball fan and not having any kind of relevant basketball team anywhere near um, (laughs) at the time. That's true. That was, that's a basketball desert right there. Yeah, but I'd actually, my first choice of colleges initially when I was planning for college was Oregon State because it was one of the few schools that actually, public schools that I could afford that actually had a computer engineering program. So I actually took a tour out here on one of those vacation trips, but they had virtually no out-of-state scholarships. When did you meet Nicole, your wife? That's much later. So I ended up uh-huh. moving out to Portland to help with a side project that my aunt had. She worked in kind of HR legal. She's an attorney. Did, worked in that and then did go back to finish my degree. Then after graduation in 98, moved out full time to Portland. Worked at the startup through the dot-com crash. We'd survived that first wave of things, but you know the economy at that time was pretty bad and so things kind of slowed down ended up unemployed and very few jobs available and actually met nicole on a trip back to nebraska through a mutual friend ended up with a job offer at the university of nebraska so how did you guys end up back in portland then so we were in lincoln for eight years there i kind of had an itch to uh, move back but we just got to a point where it was kind of time to move Uh, At that point, one of the reasons I had moved back to Nebraska was because of my dad's health issues. And Mm. by that point, he had passed away. And so it was just kind of the right time to make that move. So we moved back here in 2011, if I remember right. The cool thing about you and Nicole is that you have three children that are biological children. Yep. You have one adopted child and you currently have two foster children. You guys have been foster parents for quite a while. How long have you been caring for kids through foster care? We started that six years ago. And how many kids have moved through that have been permanently placed? Permanently placed is kind of a tricky filter there. Uh, We've had about 25 (laughs) kids 
um, wow. in that span of various types. Anything from you know four or five days to three plus years. And each child is probably got their own unique set of circumstances that you have to adjust to, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, every situation's yeah. a little bit different. The likelihood of them returning to their biological parents is different depending on those circumstances. The, mm-hmm. the issues that they're dealing with related to their family, those are all different. There are certainly some commonalities too, but yeah, every situation is, is different. And the ages that come through your house, do they vary greatly? Not a lot. We particularly focus on young children, so it's under school age. And the children that are biological, what are their ages? 11, 10, 7. The youngest biological is 15 months now. We had a surprise baby a little over a year ago. Uh, So you already had children, and then you all decided to become foster parents. So what triggered that? for you guys to want to become foster parents? Yeah, so it was something that we had been considering already. One thing to know about my beautiful wife is that she grew up around kids all the time. Her mom Mm -hmm. and her grandmother both had long careers running home daycares, running professional facilities. So she's always been around small kids, went into teaching That's just been part of her life. We had talked about it. We had worked through our church with a program out here called Foster Parents Night Out. Foster parents could bring in their kids, including both foster kids and any other kids they had in their household. We'd have activities, meals. And so we engaged with the foster care system in that way. But we were kind of figuring foster care would probably be a little farther down the road for us. And Nicole ended up meeting... uh, friend of a friend who was pregnant um, in a difficult situation. So she helped getting her to medical appointments, things like that, before she gave birth, and then as well helping out after. That turned into our first foster case because she had kind of a breakdown and Mm. got a call from the foster care agency asking if we would be willing to be a placement for her son. Wow. Fast forward a number of years, we ended up adopting him and... Um, he still gets to see his biological mother pretty much on a weekly basis. You know, it's a pretty unique situation in terms of foster care and adoption out of foster care, but it's worked well for everybody in this case. So you guys have your hands full, really. And then some. (laughs) Yeah. What is the most number of children you've had under your roof at one time? What's your high watermark? Seven. We typically run at six total kids Occasionally, it's gone up to seven, usually just kind of out of a fluke of timing. So do you ever have any free time, really? After about 9 p.m. Right. um, And nap time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you do fantasy football also, I'd like to point out. Uh, Yeah. Some some person roped me into that a few years ago. Some person roped you into that. (laughs) No. And then you promptly, I would like to point out, your first season won the championship, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Uh, I think that we did have that kind of fluke happen. Yeah. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. So you're a music guy, too. Yes. You you enjoy music from classical, church music, but also hard rock, heavy metal. Strange uh, spectrum there. but Throw in some jazz and all sorts of stuff, yeah. You have an interesting perspective on bands. 
you're gonna have to walk us through your musical spectrum. Sure. That, that runs from the consistent and easily identifiable bands on one end to more experimental and not easily identifiable bands. Identifiable. I can't even say that word. Easily identifiable <laughs> bands on the other end. You know, particularly in more uh, current pop rock, I would expect to see the same in country, although I'm not nearly as well versed in country, even though I am from the Midwest. Right. My little theory on this is, you know, you have bands that are very successful by basically having a very unique sound that is them. And all through their career, you can put in just about any track of theirs and identify them as the band. And the, the example I like to use for that is ACDC. And the genius of it really is to be able to do enough subtle things differently that it doesn't get old. You know, there's absolutely a place for that. You know, you know what you're going to get every time and it's always going to be good. You know, it's good quality control. There's, you never really have an <laughs> album that completely flops. You, and you pretty much never have anybody that says, oh, I'm just done with that band. They kind of the cop out of, they sold out. But, you know, <laughs> they, they're doing what they do you know what you're going to get. The other end of the spectrum to me is bands that, or musicians that will take a lot of risks. They'll do things that are wildly different and sometimes it'll work. And in the case of a really good band, they might work at a pretty high percentage of the time, but you always run the risk of something that just doesn't work for some or all of the audience. And, you know, my favorite band of all time is Queen they definitely fall in that category. You, know, you never really knew what you were going to hear from one album to the next, other than a killer gotcha. guitar solo. Okay. Where's U2 fall on that? I would say U2 falls probably a little bit more towards the experimental, but not quite as far. But they've got comfort tunes as well that, yeah. that you can, any audience will enjoy. Yeah. So they are the greatest band of all time. Let's, yeah, let's and you know, I do owe you a, a belated apology oh. as well, because I think you were the subject oh. of the meanest prank I ever pulled on somebody. Hmm, I don't recall, honestly. What, Not necessarily the worst outcome of a prank, because I've had a couple kind of go haywire. But Okay, um, I mean, let, let's set the stage, though. Everybody got everybody on Shram 10. Everybody went through, there was, now there's one individual who will remain nameless, who didn't understand how to take anything in stride. I believe it was your next door neighbor to your left when you exited your room in the corner. Uh, yes, I, I do know who you're referring to there. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. But everybody else got everybody else. I mean, there was let's a lot talk of about... That. that was part of the culture of our floor, which which I will That's... say, this is not a normal dorm floor. It was not a, like a specialty <laughs> audience where you got a bunch of people with the same interests. It was complete random right. placement. But we had a retention rate on the floor that for a public university was astronomical. Uh, so you had the same people you know, there year after year, and it just kind of rotated through, and it actually had a distinct culture. That is, I've never thought of that. None of us had, like you said, it wasn't an athletic dorm. It wasn't, a, you know, a, a an honors a fraternity dorm. Or, or it, yeah, it, it, it was everybody from everywhere. I mean, it was mostly Nebraska residents because that's the way the University of Nebraska was back then. But you had a couple of out-of-staters like myself. But that's amazing that you said that. I never thought of that, of how it was literally the same cast of characters every year with some newbies sprinkled in. I never thought of that, Zach. Yeah, so, but we would always prank each other. We got to know mm -hmm. each other very well. And, um, I mean, I was never duct-taped to a chair. 
No, I never did those kind of pranks. I know, I know. I think I think you were gone. Actually, I, I donated the chair. Okay, I, I had nothing to do with that prank that involved duct taping um, our good friend to a chair. Again, I donated the chair, and then I washed my hands of it. And then he was sent down to the. He was put on an elevator and sent down to the girls' floors, and uh, the doors, of course, would open up. And, and it, I mean, that was. I, you know, I think that times. might have been during the year that I was gone. I, I, and as I'm saying this, I'm thinking. You're nowhere to be found in this memory because I heard about it after the fact. Yeah, you were you you are a wild card. I could see you participating in something like that, or standing back and just letting it happen, or even condemning it. I don't know, man. You were tough to read. I wouldn't say that I was like morally above doing something like that. Um, <laughs> but if somebody else had the idea and wanted to run with it, I, I wouldn't have had a need to be involved right. either. Right. Okay. So. I honestly don't remember this terrible prank that you're apologizing for. What happened? It, this, this is why it was such a mean-spirited prank, because it involved a lot of planning that uh, <laughs> would, uh, knowing kind of what the reaction was. But okay, I went to a, the used record store, found the cheapest U2 CD I could find. One of our floor mates had an engraver, and so I engraved in the back of this U2 CD... Rude things about the band. Oh, really? I don't remember this at so all. I'm carved... sorry you took this kind of time for this. <laughs> so carving in, you know, um, stuff that, you know, obviously I don't believe. I, I do like you two, despite <laughs> having a you uh, two evangelist on our floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's set the stage there as well. I mean, I was an annoying U2 fan. All right. I mean, I'll be the first to say that. Whether it was the music playing too loudly or probably pictures on the door. I have no idea if they were on the door or not. I know that I had posters in the room. But in other words, you know me for five minutes. You know that I'm just a freak for the band. And yep. so so you carved some nasty things into a U2 CD. Wait a minute. Which CD did you ruin? Because if it was Octung Baby, then you and I are going to have words. Uh, no, it wasn't that recent. Um Okay. So it wouldn't have been in the the cheapest of the the used CDs, and it uh -huh, it wasn't like okay. War or any of those. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. It was one of probably okay. the lesser known ones. I remember what the the label on the top looked like, but it was probably like a Columbia House cheap knockoff anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. So you carved these nasty things into a U two CD, and then, and then what I, happened? I went and borrowed your copy of the CD <laughs> and swapped them out. No. <laughs> Why don't I remember this, man? You, I would have been be blocking scarred for it out. life. No kidding. This is this is cruel. So so in other words, the thought was I go to play the CD in my room at some undetermined point in the future, which probably as much as I listened to them back then would have been within a week. Yeah, well, you had like a six CD changer or something like that, and it would be yeah. always be like five U2 CDs, and I think one like in excess. <laughs> wow, somebody knows me. Okay, so what happened then? You actually didn't respond as strongly as I expected. There there wasn't a, <laughs> a, a huge meltdown. Uh -huh. I've been an animated person my entire life, so I could see why you would expect that kind of response. And yeah. so what happened then? So you had a fairly subdued response, which I couldn't ever quite interpret. Okay, is this a really <laughs> oh, no. mild response, or are you really ticked at that point? <laughs> I was probably inside. I was probably dead. And so it depends on what point the semester it was. You know, uh, that, that probably would have an on. effect as well. Okay. And so how did I discover, like, hey, 
where's my CD? Who's got my real CD? Or 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 did I ever figure it out? Or did you just kind of just be like, here, that wasn't fun? Or how did that play out? Uh, no, you noticed it. So the next time you came down to the room, I just I didn't try to hide it or anything. I just gave the CD to you. But <laughs> wow. I, I apologize for not giving you the desired response, but I honestly, as you're telling me this story, it's like I'm living it for the first time. So, um, <laughs> Not the most successful prank, but definitely the most mean-spirited. Was this before or after you returned from Oregon? I, if you say after, I know why I didn't respond the way you wanted to. I, I think it might have been after, yeah. Because I think yeah, I was in that yeah. corner room down at the end. Yeah, by then I had girl troubles. I had other things in my mind. I had Carrie I was dealing with, so. Yeah. Yeah, we're all still amazed no. how you pulled that whole thing off. <laughs> Thanks. But I, I can say the same thing that. about myself, so. Right, exactly. See? Man, we are wonders, you and I. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, there was a lot of pranking going on on Shram 10, which makes the retention rate even that more amazing. We did have one prank war that bordered on going out of control. Um that was the popcorn on the door prank. Oh, oh no, 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 no. This was, if we had smartphones in the mid-90s, the stuff that we would have recorded would, would have so many views on YouTube. <laughs> and this one is the best. Go ahead. So our mutual friend Brian and I were roommates at the <laughs> time. Um, uh-huh. we went to the grocery store, which you know, we had a kind of a warehouse type grocery store in town, bought bulk popcorn, unpopped popcorn. Uh-huh. And Wait, can we stop for a second? This is before they made the ready-made huge popcorn already popped bags that you could buy, right? Uh, you might've been able to get some, not the enormous ones, but you probably could have gotten some, but we didn't have that kind of money. So, okay. Um, we bought several pounds of unpopped popcorn. Now, one of the most brilliant parts of this, the whole story is that my roommate, Brian, really did not like popcorn. Not the smell of it, nothing. So we never had popcorn in our room. Wow, um, I never realized that about him. Okay. We borrowed a couple of air poppers, and we spent several days, if not a week, just popping popcorn whenever we had time. We ended up with a couple of, like, large garbage bags full of popped popcorn. Mm-hmm. The, the target of this was Richie, correct? Um, no. Really? Is it Luke? Yeah. Okay, Luke and Richie were in the same room together. Okay, okay. yeah, so, but it was really targeted at Luke. Um, <laughs> okay, but I think, I think, keep telling the story. I think the one who opened the door wasn't Luke, though. No, it wasn't. Ahead. It wasn't. We knew who was going to open the door. Um, oh. But but they kind of went together. I mean, they'd been roommates for quite a while. They're they're good friends. Right. So yeah, we had all this popped popcorn. The night of the <laughs> prank, basically, what we had done is we took several layers of newspaper, cut out to the size of the outer frame of the door, taped it on the door late at night, all the way from the floor up. And these doors went pretty much to the ceiling. Um, yeah. So all the way up to the top, except we didn't tape like the last 12 inches or so. Uh-huh. And then we dumped the popcorn down in between the newsprint and the door. And we'd written a bunch of stuff on the newsprint on the inside of it to misdirect oh, yeah. at some other guys on our floor that had a kind of a an ongoing prank war with them. Oh. And, you know, to try to just kind of stoke things up there as well. So we did all this and we ended up their neighbor, Bob... 
came out of his room. Oh, to their left. Yeah, and noticed what we were doing and what he wanted in on it. And we knew that this was not going to go well. Yeah. And so, but there's nothing we could do about it. You know, it's yeah, it's well after midnight. Um, you know, what are you going to do? Have an argument out in the hallway. Uh-huh. So he was in on it just kind of as a, a spectator. And so we did this knowing that Richie would come out of the room for his ROTC exercises early in the morning, open the door and <laughs> be stuck, you know, with a, a wall of popcorn coming down at him. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was the one we did there. And the, then it only took him a couple of days to figure out that Bob had some knowledge about what happened. And I, I think they threatened to shave his eyebrows and he ratted us out. And oh, come um, on. then they retaliated by putting a feeder rat in our room. A uh, who? A feeder rat, you know, from the pet store to feed snakes. And what did it do? Run around your room for a day or what? Well, it ran around, but they weren't aware that I grew up with pet guinea pigs. They were my I didn't brothers. know about this one at all. Yeah, so it wasn't all actually all that difficult for me to trap and catch the, <laughs> the rat and put it back in their room. Oh, no, no. Uh, and which they then did the same and put it back in our room. But at this point, it was Christmas break. I believe. Oh, no, no. And I knew that I was going to be one of the last people on the floor because I had a late final on, you know, on Friday. And Oh, no, dude. And no. so they were leaving. And so I just kind of hinted to them that I, and they knew it was true, that I knew about four different ways to get something into their room after they left, none of which involved me having keys to the room. <laughs> so I le- left them with the impression that I was going to leave this rat in their room over Christmas break, let it die there and stink up the place and, you know, chew on things and, you know, all of that, which we just and promptly then, returned they... the rat to a pet store. But, uh, uh, but I yeah. let them think that. And then when we got back from break, I basically put an end to it by saying that I could go after the computer because, you know, like you said earlier, they came to me for computer help. I was very familiar with the computers. Um, had pulled computer-related pranks on them in the past. So that was kind of the ceasefire at that point. Yeah, you don't want to anger the computer guy too much for, for multiple reasons. I mean, <laughs> he's the guy you're going to need help from later. And um, who knows what he could do to your computer uh, as well. Okay, I love your answers for... Because you're such a practical guy, Zach. Five possessions, if you could keep them. Um, smartphone, even without the internet, you say. Yep. Uh, give me give me one thing that you can do with a smartphone without the internet, other that I don't know about. Like, I know the camera and all that stuff. So, you can do things like if you download a section of map, the GPS and everything will continue to work on it without internet access. So, I tend to keep a local hmm. cached version of... A Google map. That's cool. Yeah. One other thing you can do with a phone without internet access. Um, I have a Red Cross first aid app. Oh, that's smart. That's real smart. You would take a solar generator yep. with you. That's smart. A car. Okay. Now, see, now now you're cheating. Now, I should have said a deserted island. If I didn't say that, yeah, shame on me. A tool set. Genius. Explain 
towel. Why would you keep a towel? <laughs> Which I understand would make sense, you know, dry off, you know, when you're done. Yeah, I, it, it's certainly practical in a in, um, number of senses. can be a blanket, uh, can be a pillow. <laughs> Which is why it's so heavily featured in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Yeah, so. that's what I wanted to ask you. Um, you talked about some books that, that you've read, and you're a big fan of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. What's the best sci-fi book out there? Oh, that's uh, an impossible question. Um, <laughs> because there, there's such different threads yeah. of science fiction. Um, okay, okay. For someone like me that is probably never going to read... Your 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 favorite science fiction book or whichever one you say, just because I'm just not a, I'm just not a fiction guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me this if you can. Which movie has done the best job of taking science fiction from the book and putting it to a movie, something not named Back to the Future? Oh, uh, let's see. There's it's a pretty short list because there's not a lot of really yeah. uh, clean adaptations. And th- that's not necessarily even a knock on the movies as much as it is. It's a different medium and you can't do everything right. from a good book and represent it in film. Unless you're going to make, you know, if you're going to do like a 10 hour miniseries or something, maybe. Usually they they miss at least some part of kind of the subtext that's actually mm-hmm. really important in a good book. And it doesn't make them bad movies. A lot of the science fiction that I do enjoy is ultimately commentary on social issues. Oh. Um, so basically take some something from kind of current state of, you know, our lives and kind of extrapolate it out in some way. And use that to make commentary on um, social dynamics or things like that. And that's, you know, one of the authors that I know I, I put in here is um, Gordon R. Dixon, who's probably my favorite sci-fi author. Uh, that is the crux of his entire, you know, main book series, which is like 15 books, something like that. Uh, mm. But the it takes our cultural dynamics and the way we kind of divide ourselves culturally and uses that to split out these splinter cultures around the galaxy around the universe as it's defined in the series take them forward some generations you know that the book series covers the entire span of this process but you know you have one planet that's basically just all the scientists and engineers. You have one planet that's basically a religious haven. You have one planet that's basically a prison planet. And then how their cultures kind of define in that isolation um, and grow and evolve in those situations. And That sounds kind of cool. It's officially called the Chilled Cycle, I believe, but Dorsi is probably the most commonly known. That happens to be the prison planet and ends up becoming a, a culture of basically high-end mercenaries. Okay. So sounds... so a lot of it is that, that social commentary, and that's what doesn't fit very well into a lot of movies. Now, you are a big fan of spicy food. I can't take even a hint of spice. So... What what's your favorite uh, spicy dish? And try to convince this guy that I should give give it a try. 
Oh, let's see. Probably my favorite, um, both to cook and to eat in general, over time, is a good jambalaya. Oh, you know what? No, I can handle that. Um, I don't want it to be spicy. Right. I, I mean, I, I love I love that, especially the okra element in that. Uh, <laughs> I, I will eat okra in any form whatsoever. Good to know. I might have to use that against you sometime. Um, why, why do I why do I feel like I'm going to open up my door someday and a bunch of okra is going to pour into my <laughs> house? Um, so tell me this: you've crossed paths with quite a few athletes, um, some MMA yeah. fighters. Uh, tell us about some of the folks that you've met along the way and, and that, that really stood out for you. Well, um, so at UNL, yeah, I, I did work in the athletic department um, for a year, and in the offices of the basically the football team's weight room. Um, so crossed paths with a lot of different people in the, that environment, which of course Husker greats. Yeah. So um, Will Shields and John Perella used to come into the office, grab one of the strength coaches, and huh. go play racquetball. Um, which I don't know that I would have trusted the plexiglass walls with those guys playing <laughs> racquetball with the size they were and the way they could move. No kidding. Um, and Will Shields would just sit down and just chat and was just like the most down-to-earth oh, guy cool. you could ever meet. It was cool always a lot of fun. I'm sure he'd have no idea who I am. But back to the intramurals side of things, you know, ending up playing basketball in the All-University Tournament, one of the better years we had you know, as our random dorm floor team, um, our our benefit for doing well in our dorm bracket was get to play a whole bunch of Husker football players in the first round of the All University tournament, <laughs> including uh, I've heard stories. Yeah, of this. a pretty significant number of which were in the NFL a year later. <laughs> this was right before I yeah. got there, because I remember you guys really were were talking about. Yeah, so this that in- included. A, you know, a guy named Adam True who had a really long career in the NFL as a long snapper because he was like six seven, you know, three hundred plus pounds, but could run like you would not believe. He was literally a long snapper on a football team that would end up making a significant number of tackles downfield on punts and things. So, uh, just an incredible athlete that I think he had a ten year plus career as a long snapper and backup center. Um, and he was an all-state basketball player before that. So, you know, we, there's, you know, guys with 40 plus inch vertical leaps and, you know, that are six, seven, you know, doing this stuff. And it was pretty ridiculous because that was just coming into kind of that golden era of football yeah. that Nebraska had in the nineties. And they were cool about it. They knew that we weren't a real threat. They, you know, there was some banter. <laughs> it was some banter, but not really trash talking. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then, yeah, the more current yeah. stuff, um, you know, I have the kids pre-COVID um, enrolled in jiu-jitsu classes at a local gym that's down the street from us that's also home to probably the top MMA team in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so we do see a number of pretty high-profile MMA fighters come through there and I've chatted with some of them and some of the up and coming ones are uh, we talk to a little more frequently than the well-established ones who, who tend to be pretty busy with other stuff going on but mm-hmm. um, you know Chael Sonnen's 
fairly prominent in that. The guy that runs this gym is Fabiano Scherner, and he's been like a 10-time world jiu-jitsu champion. It's certainly fun to be around people who have just excelled at the highest levels of something they're doing, right. whether it's in athletics or in other walks of life as well. Okay, so you played at Carnegie Hall when you were in I high did. school. What instrument? So that would have been viola. So I grew up in a very heavily classical music family. We started playing violin when we were three. Took oh, lessons wow. all the way through. I hung it up, I think my sophomore year in college. Yeah, there were four of us kids in the family. I knew I wasn't going to be going into music, unlike my older brothers. And so I was fine when they suggested I switch to viola when I had the opportunity to switch instruments because then we could have a family string quartet. And I was okay with that. And so that's kind of where I ended up in terms of string instruments. Then I also ended up playing trombone uh, later as well. I think that for our next fantasy football draft, I would like to open the ceremonies um, by having you play the viola. Uh, if I actually had my viola anymore, that could be a possibility, <laughs> but my oldest brother has it. Um, he's a violin professor uh -huh. and sometimes has okay. to teach things on viola. So, and Tell us about your parents. So, as I mentioned, my mom is a primarily a church musician, she's an organist. She actually has a master's mm -hmm. degree in that, in music performance. Wow. So that's always been a, a big part of life, getting co-opted into filling in for somebody um, playing music at church at the last minute. I remember one time coming home from an all-state orchestra performance, couple-hour drive home, and on the way home getting on a Saturday night, late Saturday night, talking through the stuff that she wanted me to play Sunday morning for church um, that was, of course, not written for the instrument I was going to be playing it on, so trying to figure out how we're going to make that work. <laughs> um, so a lot of stuff like that. But yeah, classical music household, Omaha at the time, um, I don't know the state of it these days, but at the time had a very prominent youth orchestra. What they did when I was there was did a trip to New York City and had an opportunity to play in Carnegie Hall. So got to do that. Um, oh, cool. Remember not being able to breathe well after about a day or two in New York City because in 1990, the air quality was not ideal. My dad had a master's degree in history, but taught high school science because at the time it paid better. So he's kind of a renaissance man. He, he enjoyed music, although he mostly just sang. I think he'd played French horn previously. He was a woodworker. You know, he built the cabinets in our kitchen. He laid wood floor using recycled wood floors taken out of churches. He had a full cool. wood shop in our garage. Our garage never had cars in it, basically. See, my garage <laughs> is like that, too, whereas it doesn't have cars in it, but it's not because we're doing anything productive in there. It's just a bunch of junk, but I, I digress. Continue. He also had a very large organic garden, You know, and this is back into the 70s. We had a pretty large yard being in a small town, and... A high percentage of it was garden. We had a grape arbor. We had strawberries. Yeah, we'd grow corn and potatoes and peas and onions and man, you're making me hungry. Everything dude. else and fruit trees. And he was a football referee for high school football. He was a wrestling coach. Um, later, took on being a soccer coach, even though he had never had any experience with soccer. They needed a teacher to be the head coach, and so he <laughs> decided he'd learn about it and get an assistant coach that actually knew the game. He was always willing to jump into something new and learn about it and yeah you know, so that made things very interesting growing up and 
seeing how you know that learning can be just a lifelong thing in pretty much any situation. He also in the summer would do summer jobs that like driving heavy equipment for like road construction and things like that or long haul truck driving or all sorts of different stuff. What's currently in your Amazon cart? I have a number of, you know, just like private wish lists of stuff that I store. So some of it kind of going back to the nada if you're on a desert island question (laughs) my disaster preparedness stuff because i do live in an area that is going to get hit by a major earthquake at some point in the not too distant future so portland huh being ready for that you know i've got a fair amount of that already set up but you know there's always more stuff to we could do and a lot of cds that's still a thing huh i still buy almost exclusively on cds um i like getting them they immediately go onto my file server and then i can play them online you were by the way the original (laughs) master you were the shram 10 yeah honestly so okay correct correct me if i'm wrong i remember a bunch of ethernet cables run up into the ceiling because you talked about earlier getting into a room without a key. I remember that that the room had like a like a fire um, access. There was an yeah. access. Hatch. So it was really cool, yeah. and you could you could hide stuff up there if you wanted to. I don't know what you would possibly hide up there. Uh, yeah, I don't know what a college student on a an officially dry <laughs> campus could ever possibly hide. And so Ethernet like cables literally went up from your desk into the ceiling and then dropped down into other rooms. And I was too far away. I guess, or I just wasn't ever um, a part of the Napster Club, but you basically had songs on your computer that other people could access. Is that right? Is that how that went down? The last part of it is definitely true. Um, Depending on what year it was, you know, so when I came back after taking the year off, we actually had the rooms wired at that point because the student worker job that I actually had coming back was doing those installations. Uh, so we actually had properly wired That's Ethernet in every right. room. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. If it was before that, that is entirely possible. I remember it would have been sometime in 1996. And the Connells did yes. a live stream from House of Blues in Los Angeles. It was either, 90, it was either late 96 or early 97. And this was the early early days of trying to transmit anything over the internet that was live and it was one of those Mm -hmm. really tinny streams that the audio was horrible but it was you were there you know and i remember carrie was actually Mm -hmm. at that concert and and the connells were live streaming it on the web and i remember the web such as it actually was was, you know it was all text or whatever i mean it was rudimentary i remember sitting Mm -hmm. in your dorm room and thankfully everybody was gone i don't know for the weekend or out at the bars i have no idea whatever and i just remember you were so kind as to i mean you had to do this you had to physically dial me in to this concert (laughs) so that i could experience and i just remember (laughs) sitting there in your dorm room with headphones on listening to this concert this Terrible audio. I think the Connells tried to give a shout out to me, Curtis, you know, because they were being kind to Carrie, who was probably in the front row there. But anyway, 
but you could just barely hear it. It was just really rough, but that's how far we've come with the internet uh, in the last mm -hmm. quarter century. But uh, that, was, that was my first experience with any kind of live event on the internet, was sitting in your dorm room with a pair of headphones on, all by myself, listening to this feed out of L.A. Boy, how times have changed, huh? Yeah, and you, know, you talk about Napster, but Napster wasn't yeah. even a thing really yet. That's what I'm saying. You we were the that. original Napster, man, um, at least for Shram it, 10. No, Texas A&M had us beat by a, a mile um, they had people wired up in their dorm rooms that had libraries, literally libraries wow. of music available that um, you could never listen to the whole thing in a lifetime. And to have that, um, and they were just set up as websites. They would just basically set up a, a website that was categorized by, you know, in the folder structure, band, and then, you know, album, and then mm. track. Um all there to just kind of browse through. I never went to that extent. I had a, a library, um, mostly stuff that I had bought at some point. I tried to support the the musicians. The caveat there being I did at one point have a, a Queen-related server where basically anything that you could <laughs> not buy on uh. in a regular release, I would allow on a server that people could come and get. That's funny. Um, okay, so, so whatever happened to Netscape? Whatever happened to Winamp? Is AOL still really a thing? I mean, I'm, I'm just having these flashbacks as, you, as we <laughs> sit here thinking to that time. Uh, my goodness, how it's changed. I always thought AOL was really just a manufacturer of coasters for your drinks. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're so right. Um, now, you know... So I do know what happened to Netscape. They tried to make a big business, make a big business play in the internet space. Um, basically, got beat out by Microsoft in, on that front. There, antitrust lawsuits involved, and all sorts of fun stuff. AOL was they kind of died a pretty quick death once you know just regular ISPs became available um, because they weren't particularly good at being an ISP. And what was the other one that you mentioned? Oh, Winamp. Uh, Winamp yeah. might still be around. It was the first really nice user interface and, you know, be able to do cool stuff related to playing music. So visualizations mm. and things like that. But that became so much of a commodity that there are so many options available that their legacy certainly lives on. Um, but I don't know for sure if the product does or not. Yeah, there's something I'm looking here in the Google Play Store. There's something called Free Amp, and it's got the old Winamp logo. So, who knows? I, yeah, it's I probably an open source spinoff of it. Like I said, the legacy lives on, and that kind of amp terminology has definitely survived. There, I've got uh, an app called Plexamp that's my music player for the stuff that I have on my file server here at home. So. Yeah, and and you didn't answer that question where I asked in the email, what's your favorite app? And you said none. And I wanted to ask you, does that just mean that you have so many that you enjoy or, or you just don't, uh, just don't. Yeah. And I also have enough technical expertise that I don't necessarily need an app to do things. So an app's just <laughs> one way of accessing. Listen to you. I don't need uh, apps, man. Things. So they're, they're convenient for sure. Um, but the reality is I could play my music through a web browser if I wanted to. 
the app is certainly convenient and worth having, but if it came down to it, I have other ways of doing it. Okay, this is the last question, because uh, you're not on social media, smart man. Um, uh, not not very heavily. I don't post right. much. Um, here's probably the most important question, then. then I'll just leave you with this. Um, Stefan Diggs on your fantasy football roster. What's it going to take for me to get him in a trade from you? Well, for you, <laughs> uh, probably not anything you're willing to give up. Uh, okay. All right. For anybody uh, else, I'm I'm open to options. Right. But, yeah. You know. Yeah. You'll you'll give them a bargain price, but for me, you'll you'll fleece me. All right. Well, anyhow, <laughs> Zach Reimer, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate you uh, being my guest on At the Mic, buddy. Thanks so much. No, thank you. It was a lot of fun talking with Zach, reminiscing about our days in college. There, some memories that I haven't forgotten, and as I mentioned in there, some that I've blocked out. <laughs> I guess I don't even remember that prank that he pulled against me. I will say that as of this recording, he still hasn't traded Stefan Diggs to me in fantasy football. So I need to get on that. Now next week, I'm going to sit down with a weather forecasting legend, Joe Bastardi. He's an energetic guy. He's got an awesome story uh, that covers weather history, uh, his wrestling prowess, and his love for God. I look forward to sharing that conversation when we meet back here next week with Joe Bastardi. Until then, please go be free, and thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemicshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect. Connect.